The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall, for The Spectator. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Nick Gillespie, who is the editor-at-large at the libertarian magazine and website Reason.com, and he's the author of the book The Declaration of Independence and a friend. Thank you so much for coming to speak. It's uh, extremely uh, great to be on here. I, uh, can I suggest that you change the name, though, of the podcast to The Marshall Plan? <laughs> then start becoming more prescriptive and demanding how the world should change. If I was American, that would be the name. Yeah. Um, well, I was wondering if we could start. There's a few things I want to discuss. I want sure. to ask about libertarianism and American libertarianism, censorship in America, free speech in America. But I wanted to start, if I may, with something that I find that I haven't fully understood, which is the book banning. Um, Obama last week on his Twitter put out and on his website put out a piece decrying the book banning, not just of LGBTQ mm. literature. He even mentions conservative literature. And it's the case that books like Gender Queer, a graphic novel by Maya Koba, Ko, Kobe, Flamer, a gra graphic novel by Mike Garato, and This Book is Gay by Juno Dawson. These books are, sort of seem to be progressive literature that is being banned. At the same time, conservative literature, if it can be called conservative literature, like, for example, Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage about the um, phenomenon of gender dysphoria amongst young teenage girls, that's also being banned. I wondered if you could explain what exactly is happening. Yeah, there has definitely been increased attention paid to what is in public libraries and particularly school libraries, K through 12 school libraries, mostly public school libraries over the past couple of years. I mean, this is a definite battleground in the culture wars, which increasingly are dictating all the conversation in American politics. Like, you know, uh, I've, I've been at Re Reason was established in 1968. I've been there since 1993. So I'm mm -hmm. coming up on 30 years actually being there. And until maybe a decade ago, we used to talk a lot more in politics about things like the size of the national debt, whether or not we should be running an annual deficit, what is good versus bad foreign policy. And, you know, realistically, over the past five to 10 years, more and more topics have been gravitating to this culture war type stuff. So that's, you know, um, you know, should should gay people have the same rights to get married as as straight people, et cetera. That was one thing, you know, that got solved. Now we're talking about trans issues and things like that. And then it plays out increasingly in what books do you allow in a public space, mm -hmm. right? Um, how do how do colleges, what kinds of students do they admit or not, private or public, but especially, you know, when we're talking about public policy, it's really about public uh, schools. And, you know, this the book banning stuff, you know, it's wrong to call these book bans in the sense that they are not, it's not censorship, it's not George Orwell, it's not Ray Bradbury and Fahrenheit 451 where people are going around and, you know, burning books or extirpating them. Uh, interestingly, there are increasing attempts to stop certain books from being published that overwhelmingly seems to be coming from the left. So when there are books that, you know, are deemed to be politically incorrect or not sufficiently woke or, you know, they transgress some line, uh, you know, uh, you will see online campaigns to get publishers to drop certain what things off of it. Uh, there was a book that came out a while ago, a couple of years ago, called American Dirt. And it was a book written by a white American about a, um, um, a Hispanic uh, woman kind of moving, uh, you know, illegally migrating to the United States. And that became 
a huge flashpoint. The book was published. It was a massive publishing success. So it didn't work. Uh, and that's also important to think about. But, you know, in the broader context of cancel culture, there are, you know, more and more visible attempts to shut down certain types of speech. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's interesting um, is that I think in a profound way, this reflects the fact that more people are able to speak more freely in more places than ever before. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the one way of thinking about it is like we're in this repressive cycle where people are trying to shut down speech they disagree with. I think that's true. But paradoxically, and probably more important, there are more ways to speak than ever before. That ties in with Martin Gurry's theory of mm-hmm. there being so much, we're in the age of so much information. Yeah. It's, um, and, and, the, and these venues, whether, you know, he talks in, in The Revolt of the Public, which I think is, you know, one of the essential guides to the past 15 or 20 years and, and probably the next 15 or 20 years. He talks a lot about how Twitter, you know, underwrote or empowered the, uh, the Arab Spring. I, in a way that was un, you know, unpredictable or unforeseeable. It's kind of ironic now that Twitter during COVID and during these types of uh, kind of battles, co- you know, Twitter is a site of censorship, right? Or, or of repressing certain types of speech. But in the end, we live in an age where more people can talk in more, more ways than ever before. So I think we should be careful in just denouncing the idea that oh, we live in an age of censorship, um, because that's true. I mean, people are trying to control speech more than ever, mm-hmm. but it, more speech escapes that. Um, that's kind of a broad, well, almost anodyne backdrop to what you're talking about, though, with you know public uh, public library bans and school bans, and um, you know, there's no question that. Uh, uh, kind of K through 12 education curricula have always been political. Um, They're getting more and more increasingly politicized. And now people are arguing and often in terms that I think are wrong to say, you know, like, is it wrong to take a book like Gender Queer, which is very sexually explicit, like independent of what kind of sex is going on? It's very sexually explicit. And it seems to me we have to be having a series of different conversations. And instead of saying, you know, gender queer is challenged in a in, in and it's in the adult section or the young adult section of a public library. That's one thing to say. It's it's being removed from a middle school library. You know, that kind of makes sense um, because it really is sexually explicit in a way. I don't think most people would say, yeah, that's that's good for fifth graders or third graders. Um, and then there's that broader context of like the fact is more and more books from LGBTQ plus authors are being published and are being read, which as a libertarian, I like free speech. I like individualism. I like people being able to express themselves. But then we're having these struggles over, you know, in what context, et cetera. And we're, we're kind of having the wrong debate in a lot of ways. What do you think the, the, the correct debate is? I think the correct debate is to be thinking about with something like K through 12 education, if the school curriculum and if the school library is stocking books or where the teachers are pushing books and and curricula, you know, a curriculum on your your kids that you don't believe in, you know, the policy fix to that isn't to say, okay, everybody who lives in this school district either gets something taught, you know, to them whether the parents like it or not, or they are not allowed to learn about this. It's to create more school choice so that. There are more ways that parents can match their kids to the schools that they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also a big movement right now um, for public school choice as well as you know, private school choice. That's still pretty complicated, moving your kid. Because a little bit, yeah. But, but do you think sort of it's almost like a federalist system? Yeah, that, totally. It, I mean, it, like, you know, and, and I say this as somebody, I grew up lower middle class where, you know, we're talking in New York. I grew up about 50 miles from here in New Jersey. And I went to very academically shitty Catholic schools that my parents paid for. And that was a version of school choice. I, they, the public schools were much better academically, et cetera. But they, you know, they said they wanted you know, whatever a Catholic education meant to them, which generally I interpret as being like academically less serious than the public school, mm-hmm. strangely. But you know, if my parents didn't like what the Catholic school was teaching, they could go to the school and say, hey, we don't like this. Would you do something about it? And then if the Catholic school said, fuck you, then they would go to the public school or another school. Um, and, 
you know, I think that's a better fit. You know, we have something like over 100,000 school districts in America right now. Um, we should have maybe 30 million or however many K through 12 students there are, because everybody should be able to find an education that, you know, or every parent should be able to find an education that they think is good for their kid. But you, you mentioned uh, Twitter and, and actually we're being in an age of, of abundance of, mm -hmm. of free speech, but you and I were both in Memphis a week or so ago, yeah. listening to RFK Jr., who was uh, part of his presidential campaign. He was censored through COVID. Uh, he claims to be the first man to be censored by the Biden administration. There seems to be, even though it might be an abundance of free speech owing to social media, there's also a, a lot of censorship. Going. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, and again, censor, you know, I don't want to be pedantic about it, but censorship uh, or squelching of speech, I mean, like, you know, censorship. I really think of, I think it's best to keep that as sharply defined as possible. And that is when a government or, a, you know, a government that has the force of, you know, police says this speech is not allowed and we're going to go out and strike it down. I'm on the board of a group called Ideas Beyond Borders, which translates Western works or, or various works about pluralism and free speech and, and a lot of values like that, a lot of enlightenment values into Arabic and then you know, distributes them for free as ebooks in the Arab speaking world. And, you know, there are countries where if you are caught in possession of a book, you are, you are killed or you're put in prison. We're not there. And, you know, that kind of censorship, I don't want to diminish that plight with, you know, the fact that RFK Jr., who um, I disagree with a lot, I absolutely agree that his speech was squelched on Twitter uh, and on Facebook and other social media accounts. He was bounced. Um, you know, in, in ways that I find incredibly egregious. Mm -hmm. um, so to, you know, get to the point, it's the, this is another paradox, right? Which is that Twitter, Twitter facilitates more speech and more people being able to say whatever they want. Uh, and it also definitely was revealed in the Twitter files, reasons Robbie Suave did a, uh, he got information about Facebook uh, that was very similar where there is no question that Facebook, Twitter, other social media platforms, certainly YouTube, they were not just um, pressured by the government to shut down certain accounts or to squelch the reach of certain information because it ran afoul of some government, you know, some government apparatchiks, but that people at these platforms were going to the government and saying, hey, what do you think about this? Like, should we squelch this? So there's something really rotten and sickening in all of that, and it's good to expose that, and it's good to hold the uh, companies accountable. I'm interested about the the legal uh, si side of it because that's Section 230, right. uh, which gives them free from the liability of should a user take right. uh, slander or libel yeah. someone. It's not their responsibility, and that would be insane because it would yeah. they would have to be that every single there thing. would be no. I mean, the internet as we know it would be very, very different. There would be no user generated content, yeah. which is really what has made the internet what it is. By the same token, that Section Two Thirty also gives platforms the right to uh, limit speech or to kick people off and to moderate some speech without having to moderate all speech, et cetera, and things like that. Well, uh, it, there's an argument about mm -hmm. whether Twitter is the public square. Right. And so, and so uh, I think technically it's, it has to be the government that's uh, stopping free speech, and it would be the case in yeah. Twitter files that it was the government colluding to stop free speech. But let's say the government weren't involved in that, and it was just the social media. Um, in, in fact, in the, the speech that RFK gave that yeah. we uh, both watched at Elvis Presley's uh, car park uh, uh, garage, um, <laughs> amongst his um, Bentleys and Rolls and yeah. all these flashies. Yeah, it's like, it's like. Um, uh, RFK gave the example of the 1972 case where a Vietnam anti-war protester in a shopping mall they they were throttled by the um, the mall uh, and then they went to the Supreme Court. Now RFK claimed in the speech we saw that the um, Supreme Court sided with the protesters and that the mall was a public space. Well, actually, RFK is wrong. I looked right that up. Yeah. Um, in fact, the uh, Supreme Court sided with the mall right. and that it was a private, it was private land. Yeah. And so there was, it was no uh, public, uh, it wasn't a public space. What, where do you think the, the law should be on this? Is Twitter the public square? No, uh, or rather it is, it should not be a uh, 
it should not be a public a square that is regulated in the public interest, like the way that broadcast networks are, broadcast radio uh, still is. Um, because I think when you cross that line and you say, okay, you know what, we're effectively going to nationalize this and say it's so important and so ubiquitous that we are going to limit how you can control what speech is allowed or disallowed on your platform. Uh, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas, the two governors in Republican states with Republican majorities in the legislature, have passed laws doing this to social media companies of a certain sort saying you can't disallow this speech, you can't do this because they believe that conservative voices are being systematically squelched um, and those are being held up in court um, because they, I, you know, you'd, I, under... However bad Twitter was, you know, before Elon Musk, and now I guess it's X, you know, is after Elon Musk, um, it's going to be much, much worse if the government is saying this speech is allowable and this speech is not. That, that would be a blow to free speech. The other thing that we should think about is I have a, you know, and this is I'm a libertarian, so I believe in, you know, that markets are not perfect, but they facilitate a lot of options. And we have seen just in the past couple of years, a, you know, a raft of alternatives to something like Twitter, right? You know, we have threads most recently that is, you know, from Meta, um, which has completely flopped. Uh, well, it hasn't David, completely you, flopped. It, it had a big, you know, rush and now people are less interested in it, mm -hmm. right? Um, but you also have Noster and Blue Sky and a variety of other uh, programs and platforms and it seems to me, you know, Twitter has also changed um, because they have to respond to criticism and that it's better to work through kind of market forces and say, you know, to protest, to, um, you know, go to the to the people who run these platforms and say, you know what, this isn't working, push for change within that or create your own. And now having said that, um, you know, back in the day, not very long ago, you know, conservatives did, that was a stock liberal answer when, you know, conservatives would say, hey, we're getting screwed on Facebook and Twitter. And liberals would say, well, go build your own platform then if you don't like it. And, you know, then conservatives did that with uh, Parler in particular. And then, you know, various other, you know, liberal or progressive people working at Amazon Web Services and in other, you know, and in app stores kept trying to keep Parler down. So it's not it's not clean. It's not easy. But I think that kind of rough and tumble is far preferable to giving the government, you know, the very government that nobody trusts, the ability to say this speech is OK. You cannot censor this speech. You, you have to carry this speech. No, thanks. We did that throughout all of the 20th century in mass media, you know, whether it was radio, TV, uh, whatever. And it was a disaster. What do you mean we did that? We, you know, the government said uh, in order to, if, if you were a TV station that broadcast over the air uh, or a radio station, you were, you had to carry certain speech or you couldn't not carry things. You had to have things like the fairness doctrine. You had to have equal time. And what that did was it degraded public discourse so that only a few viewpoints would be aired. Uh -huh. What we live in now, and this, I think for me, is one of the conceptual uh, kind of frameworks or the conceptual breakthroughs we need. And I, I have been struggling to articulate this, so maybe it's just like a, an inchoate and dumb thought in my mind. But it seems to me we are, we're, grap we're in a world now where so many things are possible and so many things are happening and so many great things are happening, particularly in terms of mass personalization, individual empowerment, autonomy, but we're struggling to kind of understand them and regulate them through a 20th century model of kind of top down, you know, top men, you know, the best and the brightest controlling things from mm -hmm. the top. Everything in the 21st century is the best parts are about bottom up, emergent orders, individuals doing what they want. And we need to come up with kind of mindsets as well as institutions and political policy solutions that take that into account and allow that to kind of proliferate mm -hmm. rather than say, no, you know, what we need to do is to maintain a monopoly, you know, a political duopoly between Republicans and Democrats and speech rights between liberals and progress or progressives and conservatives. Like we're, you know, we look around in the world and it is 
you know, for the first time in human history, according to the Brookings Institution and some UN uh, charters, a majority of people around the world live in middle-class circumstances. Mm. This is unbelievable. We never talk about that. We don't talk about the implications of mm. that. Uh, we, you know, we live in a world where you can self-publish anything you want and you have a chance of getting an audience for it. Mm. And we are talking about you know, we've got to keep genderqueer or To Kill a Mockingbird or Huck Finn mm-hmm. out of eighth grade English. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, what the fuck? We are, we're, we're like um, Dr. Faustus in, um, in Christopher Marlowe's Faustus, where it's like, suddenly, you know, we, we have the ability to do anything we want. We have this incredible demonic power in the best way possible. And we're doing things like pinching girls' asses and laying sausages on the nose of the Pope. We, we, we're, we're like... We're locked in a struggle, a twilight struggle for the 20th century, which we've left behind. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we should just be doing, we should be doing better with all that is available to us. Something's happening both in my country and your, mm. your country. And if, if I can just go back one step to the social media um, uh, issue is in my country, it's coming through the online safety bill. Yep. And, and here, uh, 200 student, uh, school districts have joined to uh, litigation against big tech companies to childproof the internet. Yep. This seems to be one of the fault lines on on uh, free speech. What? Yeah. What's the uh, significance of this? How how much am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Uh, Cuss away. I don't know. Well, <laughs> we'll no, but I, you know, school districts will do everything to blame everybody except themselves. Like the idea that the reason why. School kids aren't learning is because of TikTok or Instagram or Facebook is so fucking embarrassing. I mean, you know, in New York State, uh, the average uh, uh, K through twelve uh, cost per pupil is something like thirty grand, mm-hmm. and they can't teach kids to read. Mm-hmm. That isn't because of social media. It's something that is happening in the schools. And again, I think better school choice. You would be matching kids with schools that they're actually interested or that that know how to teach to that particular kid, uh, et cetera. I think, you know, I, I, I think you would see a lot of these social problems disappear because they're not really problems. It's just like, you know, if you were uh, if, if you were an intellectual kid and you got sent to a football school mm-hmm. like you're not going to do well. And like we need to sort people better and everything will will get better. But. The idea that, um, you know, school districts are going to try and shut down or regulate or extract a tax out of TikTok and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, you've got to be kidding me. Like, that is such an evasion of basic responsibility. And and if I may, like, this is where, you know, you get past the right-left thing because conservatives and progressives both hate social media, right, for different reasons. Um, but they're you know, they're full of it. I mean, it's like it isn't it isn't those things that are failing our children when they spend, you know, six to eight hours a day, nine months out of the year in a public school. It's what's happening in the schools, mm. I think. Well, uh, so as you say, social media is getting blamed for everything. And I, I just uh, had dinner with Abigail Sh- uh, Shry, who I uh, mentioned earlier. Yeah, author. And I've talked and to her a couple of times. She, well. she, her next book is about the, uh, I'm not sure this is her term, but what it seemed to me the, the sort of therapy industrial complex mm-hmm. and how American children are being ushered through therapy and everything, yeah, being uh, over-prescribed uh, medicines and told they have various conditions. There's many other issues yeah. affecting um, Americans. And I, I wonder what you think those other ones are, which ones we should be really more concerned with. Uh, you know, I, um, I think that fundamentally what we are doing is we are in a... Um, we're in a fight between different cl- de- what are called declension narratives. Um, so... That the dominant discourse in America, and I suspect this is somewhat true in England or in the UK, and it is in most of Europe as well, which is that we live in a period after the golden age. And, you know, depending on who you are, you'll pick uh, this was the golden age or that was the golden age. But we talk about everything as a crisis that needs to be addressed immediately. And I alone have the one solution, you know, and this is RFK Jr., has a hard on about vaccines, you know, and it's COVID vaccines now before that it was MMR, but that's why everything is screwed up, right? And, um, you know, Abigail Schreier will have a different thing and it's about gender ideology mm-hmm. and, you know, and that's destroying, every, uh, you know, other people will say it's 
uh, you know, it's Instagram and it is forcing, you know, it's making people want things that they will never be able to afford, you know, whatever it is, like there's all sorts of things. Uh, you know, people will say it's late capitalism, uh, you know, and this is, you know, we're just grinding to the end of. And well, late liberalism. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, and um, the first and foremost thing that we should be doing is kind of reevaluating these declension narratives. Uh, because in fact, when you look in America, if you look at things like after taxes and transfer payments, the number of children who are living in poverty is at an all time low. The number of single women with children or, or households with children at all time lows. Um, you know, the, the, the amount of medical- Is that in America? Birth, yeah, in, in America. Oh. But then again, around the world, things are going fantastically well. You know, 25 years ago, when the UN started talking about, we want to, you know, help knock down the, the absolute poverty rate uh, mm -hmm. in, in, around the world, we hit those milestones and blew through them much quicker than anybody thought. Uh, you know, fewer people die of weather-related disasters around the world mm -hmm. at any point in history. In absolute terms, even though we have many more people in the globe, much less, you know, in percentages and things like that, there are so many things that are going well. Women are doing fantastically well in contemporary America by most material yardsticks, things like graduating from college, medical school, law school. And yet, what do we, you know, what do we hear about? It's like that everything is darkness. Well, uh, forgive me for then not following you okay. in this positive yeah, conversation because yeah, I, I know. want to keep stick so and concentrating on the four lines and the, yeah. and the and okay. The, no, and I was just going to say that libertarians are usually apocalyptic. They're like, you know, if you raise this tax, <laughs> one quarter of one percent civilization is fragile and it'll disappear. But it's like we're actually in the middle of a hell of a run, including after COVID. You know, within a couple months, when, when COVID started and then people were talking about, okay, we got to get vaccines for this stuff, they were saying it's going to take three to five years to get vaccines, you know, prepped and ready and out into the world. And it took eight months. And it could have been shorter if we changed the way that we actually go through the approval process of drugs. And I realize, you know, there are, there are, there are issues about the way that we dealt with COVID. The public health authorities lied about stuff consistently. Uh, we should have been more attuned to the, how COVID affected different people of different ages. And we punished, you know, young children and we punished young adults, particularly men, uh, you know, uh, get, forcing, I'm against vaccine mandates under almost all circumstances and under the COVID, uh, you know, regime. But, you know, we had this Worldwide pandemic, which we essentially figured out how to end it in a record period of time, far more, op you know, better than the most optimistic forecast. And we are still like, oh, you know what, this world is horrible. It's terrible. It's like, no, we're, we're like doing quite well as a, as a planet and as a, as a society and as a civilization. Well, having just read RFK's book on yeah. Tony, Fauci, Tony Fauci, I could go into yeah. uh, the my criticisms of the of the vaccine but yeah uh, and no and fauci does uh, you know for for reasons that sometimes parallel but are distinct from what uh, kennedy does now fauci has a so much to answer for we just did uh, at reason a hour and a half long conversation with matt ridley the great science writer who also co-authored this is why he's such an optimist because you've been speaking to matt ridley yeah he's a rational optimist and also very tall like well, you know and he's british it's like everything's coming up roses with matt ridley but um you know we it was a critique of the way the public health authorities acted during COVID, and also the way they worked with the government and Twitter and Facebook and other social medias to squelch the lab leak theory mm -hmm. for reasons that are deeply, deeply disturbing. Mm -hmm. um, and absolutely, everybody should be livid at this. But so there's a lot of reasons to be, um, you know, angry and, and truly critical of Anthony Fauci. Mm -hmm. There's also that large point that we, you know, we are done with this pandemic. And the next one is likely not to be as bad because we know we we made certain advances with mRNA vaccines, and again, I, we you know, we could get into a conversation about that. But you know, this is like we did pretty well. I, I wanted to ask you about um, a, a, a a poll that you published at Reason. I think it was a Newsweek one. Yes, about uh, the rise in popularity of making misgendering a crime. Forty-four yep. percent of millennials 
want to make misgendering a crime. Right. In America, 38% of 35 to 44-year-olds said it should be a crime. And this seems to match up with what I've witnessed in the creative industries, mm-hmm. GLAAD, Gay and Lesbian yeah. Alliance Against Defamation, posted an open letter signed by hundreds of uh, yeah. artists and celebrities alike, including people like Judd Apatow, Amy Schumer, uh, Jamil, Jamil, and um, many others, uh, looking for the censorship of misgendering, dead naming people, censorship of misinformation about uh, healthcare for, gen- uh, for trans kids in line with COVID censorship. It seems that censorship is popular. And I, that's particularly startling in this country with the First Amendment. I, I, I wondered what your, why you think that it's the case that the younger generations have taken this turn or yeah. why they don't necessarily value free speech or why, uh, let's say, even I'm not sure it's hate speech necessarily to misgender right. someone. It might be an accident. But, but it seems like it's being roped into the idea that it is hate speech and hate speech should be actionable and things like that. I mean, yes. this, where, again, to go back to the starting point, I think, of this conversation, there's definitely a spasm of, you know, censorship or censoriousness, censorialness, um, you know, that is that is alive and and kind of growing, right? Um, which is deeply, deeply disturbing. I think, uh, you know, so I'm turning 60 in a couple of weeks. I'm at the end of the baby boom. And I grew up in a moment, like I grew up in the 70s and 80s, really. And that I, you know, I took for granted that free speech, even objectionable speech was, you know, that was the the ante of living in a free society and a, and a good society is that you would put up with bad speech and you would counter it with better speech, right? Mm-hmm. This is like the ACLU used to talk about this all the time. Uh, and the ACLU is now on the side of censoring things, right? Or, you know, I don't know that they want to criminalize misgendering people, but they're, you know, they've abdicated their open speech, uh, you know, kind of positions. As of um, the SPLC. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, that is deeply, deeply disturbing. And I think one of the, you know, to ask why are millennials or, you know, younger people who were raised by baby boomers who supposedly cared about free speech. I mean, this is an interesting kind mm-hmm. of conundrum. And I think that a lot of boomers have given up on free speech because they feel like, oh, things are too important now. Um, and they taught their children. I have uh, you know, I have uh, two kids. One is a millennial and one is Gen X. Um, I didn't teach them this, but they got from a lot of different places that, you know, speech is the equivalent of action or, you know, and, and that words wound, you know, like bullets or knife, knife blades or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and this is what happens when you teach that there's an equation between speech and action. Um, you know, then you have to police speech because it's the same thing as like pushing someone teaching, in the face. Who's been teaching this in a collision between speech and action? Yeah. I, that mean, I think that is coursing through K through 12 education. I think through a lot of, um, you know, media and, and creative work and things like that. Um, I think, and I wrote about this in 98 or 99, uh, you know, you mentioned childproofing the world. I wrote a, a cover story for Reason called Childproofing the World. And it was in the late 90s, children by every possible measure were doing better than ever. And there was a concerted effort, mostly coming from liberal and progressive forces like Hillary Clinton was a leader in this, to childproof the world because they were saying that kids were at higher and higher risk for all sorts of uh, problems, including you know, encountering violent uh, video games or, or violent music. You know, this was in the era when the Parents Music Resource Center was saying, you know, listening to Darling Nikki by Prince or She Bop by uh, Cindy Lauper yeah. insanely, you know, would somehow ruin children forever. Mm-hmm. That worldview has, uh, you know, just dominated and dominated. I, I chalked it up to a number of, of things including the fact that we were having fewer children. So each child took on relative more weight. We were spending more raising kids as a society. Um, so like literally we were putting fewer eggs in, in a basket and projecting all of our hopes and our anxieties on them. And we mm-hmm. wanted to protect them. It's like the story of the Buddha, you know, the Buddha's parents, the Buddha's father wants to 
keep him in a walled garden where he never sees illness or poverty or death or old age. Uh-huh. We've been doing that as a society for the past 30 years at least. We've become more precious about, yeah, about our children. And it's all proceeds from this absolutely misbegotten premise that children are not resilient, um, you know, or, or, and that society is not resilient. And I think it's now taken on a, a logic of its own. I think compounding that, the kids who were raised under that, who are the ones who are, you know, 25 to 34 or 25 to 44, are moving into power now. There's a generational dynamic to this. The baby boom, you know, which was between 46 and 64, was such a massive generation. And it just, it kicked out, you know, as it was moving into, you know, its 30s and 40s. It dethroned the greatest generation and the silent generation, the people, you know, who fought World War II and, you know, were before, who came of age before the 60s. And you use you, generational shifts like this, you use whatever is around to get rid of the old guard. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going through something similar like that. The millennial generation is a massive cohort, and, and especially when you combine it with Gen Z, baby boomers are sticking around longer. They're clogging up, you know, they're at the top of the masthead, they're at the top of the, you know, corporation, they're still dominating a lot of cultural production. I mean, that's starting to shift. But I think part of what you're seeing now from this, you know, group, the, you know, let's say millennials, you know, people in their early 40s to late 20s, you're seeing a cons- a, a, not a coordinated effort, but a concerted effort to get to dislodge the baby boom generation. And one of the ways to do that, Me Too was part of that. And speech police is part of that because like who is who who is most stricken? Now, you know, it's like COVID was the boomer remover, right? Like it, it mostly killed old people. Um, so did these efforts. I think a lot of them are aimed at pushing out older people. So you have people who are raised to believe words are violence and that, you know, you need to police everything because otherwise you're going to hurt people and cause trauma, which has been expanded in its definition to include basically everyday life. Um, you have that and then you have the need, you know, to get rid of the people who are who are clogging up the works. If the birth rate decline is continuing, what is the way out of this preciousness? Or maybe a broader question is, how do we show the value of free speech? How does this turn around? Yeah. That's, uh, those are great questions. One, I mean, embedded in the idea that declining birth rates or fertility rates is a problem is a sense that, um, you know, if, if there are fewer people on the planet, you know, economic and kind of social progress stops. And there, you know, there's a lot of theorists who believe that, um, include, you know, both libertarians, conservatives, liberals, and progressives mostly agree that on some level, like if you have a shrinking population, it's hard to maintain economic and material progress. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, given that, you know, the early end of the baby boom uh, in the late 60s and early 70s was fixated on overpopulation. There were too many people mm. on the planet destroying Mother Earth. We needed to really depopulate. And now, of course, now that we have that, it, you know, it's it's not here yet, but it's in the, you know, it's on the horizon. Now people are freaking out. Yeah. Oh, we're not going to have enough people. Um, I think uh, there's a couple things. One is that like fertility declines, again, are one of these things where uh, well, a year ago or so, um, the, there were tons of news reports because there was a census bureau of that women were having fewer babies, like millennial women were having fewer babies than ever. Oh, what a freak out. But it's like, actually what that reflects is the fact that women have more opportunities and options mm. and that both men and women want smaller families. Because they, you know, they're doing more, they're li- we're living longer, we're doing more things. It's actually the decline in fertility is the result, I would argue, um, of modernity winning, of giving people more options and more control over their biology. I don't see that in and of itself as a problem that needs to be corrected because it's also a global phenomenon. Everywhere, people are having fewer kids. And the reason for that is because... They have more individual control over their reproduction. Are you, are you sure that there's an actual desire for fewer kids? Or let's say in, in the West, could it not be that there's, uh, you know, for example, in, in Britain, the housing, we have a housing crisis, mm-hmm. very expensive because this is the same thing yeah. across Europe. 
it's that actually families can't afford or it's a it's a big financial bigger than ever financial yeah. hit there's a there's a demographer or a social scientist at the American Enterprise Institute named Scott Winship who has looked at this and he looked at the the number he he uh, looked at data that asked you know boomer women in the uh, late or not boomer women but uh, women in the late 50s and early 60s, how many kids did you want to have? And then how many kids did they have to see, like, how close did they get to their goal, you know, their dream of when they were in their, you know, 20s? Um, and then he did the same thing with early millennials. And millennials wanted fewer kids, and but they're closer to their aspirational goal than boomer women were. Mm. Um, I think what has happened, and this is something, you know, I, again, I mentioned I grew up, uh, you know, I'm a boomer. And I went to Catholic school when I was in uh, grammar school and high school, like there were always a couple of families in every grade that had, you know, eight or 12 kids. I mean, it was a very cartoon Catholic thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, those families don't exist anymore. And I don't think that's primarily because, uh, you know, college costs a lot or housing has gone up. It's also true, like housing, when you get outside of a few market areas, is not as, you know, mm -hmm. Housing has gone up a lot in New York. It hasn't, you know, if you're in a small town in Ohio or something, it's not, you know, it's it's still affordable. But I think women, uh, this is something that Jonathan Last, who is a conservative writer who is at the Weekly Standard and is now at the Dispatch, I believe, um, wrote a book about it called What to Expect When Nobody's Expecting. And he concluded, you know, across the globe, Everybody agrees that the more years of education women have, the fewer children they have. So I think it's right to say that, and he actually says, you know, that to change that is you would have to repeal modernity, where women have more control and autonomy over their bodies, where they have more options, where they have more rights and equal status in society. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, so um, I, you know, I, I don't think that the uh, push for fewer children is either because things are more expensive or because, you know, the other thing that you hear a lot, particularly on the left, is I don't want to bring a child into a world that is about to burn yeah. to death or, so, you, know, a, you know, the planet is about to become a cinder. I think it reflects a lot of changes uh, that are global and that are not going to change anytime soon. Mm -hmm. a, very, a human civilization is a movement towards fewer kids per family. And which, um, so, which is a move, by the yeah. way, towards the end of the human race. Maybe, maybe not. It's, you know, because you can, we're also much more efficient and productive. I think it will represent or it will produce certain kinds of challenges. You see this, uh, Japan is the one developed economy that has fewer people now than it had in 2000. Um, it is an intensely closed society it is, uh, when it comes to reproduction and many other things, including female status. It's a very dysfunctional society, and they are going to have to change if they want to maintain a standard of living. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just regarding gender, but, you know, they have since uh, really the uh, early 1990s, they have gone into an economic slide, a kind of sideways movement that they won't be able to maintain forever, but because they won't allow markets to function and flush out poorly performing companies because they are a mix of hyper, you know, kind of creative destruction in markets and traditional structures. And uh, that's not going to work forever. I think America is becoming a little bit ossified like that. I think parts of Europe have. And this, again, is like we, we need to leave the 20th century behind. And instead of starting to say, you know what, we need to get back to that moment after World War II, where for the first time in recorded history, birth rates started going up for a little bit, you know, the baby boom in the U.S. anyway. And we have to be, this is the reality. How do we, how do we maximize happiness? How do we uh, create individual rights? How do we create meaning in the world mm -hmm. given where we are na now, not where we were in 1970 or 1950? Mm -hmm. So your other question was, how do we reverse this question about free speech? And I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for me, free speech is important because individual expression is you know, the thing that I value the most probably. And I don't mean that just in speech. I mean that like, you know, you should be able to live your life the way that you want to. I should be able to do that. I should be able to run my business the way that I want to, you know, et cetera. Um, 
I think that's a better world. Um, it's a more interesting world, a more productive world, a more prosperous world, ultimately a more fair world. And this is the libertarian. Position. Yeah, very much so, I think. And, you know, that's a really good question. Like, how do we start to build a culture of free speech and of free expression and of not anarchy, not everyone for themselves, but a kind of laissez-faire that then also has a communal aspect to it and builds, you know, has a respect for the need of a social safety net and to make sure that everybody is enfranchised in a society. What uh, does a social safety net mean for a libertarian? Like for yourself? me, yeah, I know, you know, and I speak for myself here, a lot of libertarians call themselves or, you know, are actually, they'll say they're anarcho-capitalists. So they don't believe that there should be any government or that there needs to be any government, that things will work out otherwise. I'm not there. I'm more of a classical liberal coming out of uh, 18th and 19th century kind of revolutions in uh, both in industry, but also mostly in political philosophy, mm -hmm. where I believe in a limited government. Um, and I think, you know, the, one of the ways that we do that, we have a government in America that since 2000, um, you know, has quintupled or, or quadrupled, or let me see, we've gone from tripled. We went from uh, annual budgets in the federal government of about $2 trillion to over $6 trillion, and it looks like we're not coming back. The government is doing too many things. It's spending too much, and it does very few of them well. Mm -hmm. We need a government that is smaller but more effective in the things that it provides. And I think, you know, there's like national defense. Um, we could easily cut the f defense budget in half, and America wouldn't be any less safe. I don't think our interests around the world would be less safe. We just spent 20 years, you know, um, prosecuting two disastrous wars, you know, and in Afghanistan, it, it's darkly laughable mm -hmm. that, you know, we went in there, deposed the Taliban, built a bunch of shit, left things behind, and then we're to the Taliban. It's like, here you go, mm -hmm. take over, right? You know, it's like, that wasn't good. I don't think we did. You know, the, the Middle East is doing better now that we have left, um, you know, and this is partly Donald Trump. And the Abraham Accords set things up in motion where, the, you know, the Middle East, the, the people in the Middle East are starting to do what they need to be, you know, what they need to mm -hmm. in order to have a better place. But we could reduce the size of defense spending. We could reduce the amount of social welfare spending so that, you know, most transfer payments, you know, where tax dollars go to a favored group, those aren't going to poor people. They're not going to people who need food, clothing and shelter. They're going to middle class people you know, to subsidize student loans, to uh, subsidize health care, to subsidize mortgage interest payments. Like, we need to radically reduce the size, scope, and spending of government and have it be effective and efficient on the people it's helping. Um, and that is the beginning. That would be a reboot that I think would help us become a, a livelier, more responsive society. You, you know, you just... Uh Progressives, conservatives, Democrats, and Republicans alike are all up in arms by the state of the world. You've just described how big uh, the government expenditure is, yeah. and yet you call yourself the optimistic libertarian. Yeah, yeah. Where is where is your optimism derived from? Uh, yeah, you know, it's because this uh, and you know the last few years have certainly been taxing to this optimism and possibly to the you know the veracity of this statement. I've always believed that um, we. Generally, um, you know, uh, technology is the kind of handmaiden or the engine of a lot of freedom. Um, you know, once you uh, once you have, you know, better technology, people can live more on their own. Or you know, we have more developed markets, so like I don't have to churn my own butter and make my own clothes, et cetera. Huh. And a lot of that is, you know, it's both policy and political theory, but it's also just technology um, and. I think that what we have seen over the past couple of hundred years, at least, is that the technology that allows us to live more freely outpaces the the growth of the government to kind of hem it all in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of my optimism. I mean, government is growing, um, you know, but there is a surplus of kind of autonomy that comes from these things. Uh, as well as the breakdown in social mores and things like that. And again, I realize for conservatives and traditionalists, uh, and they can be right, or for, let's say, traditionalists, and they can be right-wing or left-wing, the breakdown of things like 
uh, you know, the church, you know, wh- you know, whatever church you believe in, but in religiosity, um, the breakdown in the belief that there are uh, there's a Mandarin class that knows best, whether we're talking about what is the best art, what is the best culture and literature, or what is the best way to live. Those are breaking down, um, and that frees up individualism. I'm more able to live my life the way that I want to than my parents were or my grandparents were. I think my children will have even more ability to do that despite the growth of government. But that doesn't mean we should allow government to just keep growing and kind of be a barnacle on the whole of, you know, the great ship freedom or something like that. I think things would be much better. And most importantly, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm like upper class, I think, you know, on a strict income level and things like that. I can take care of myself if we reduce the size, scope and spending of government and target it on people who needed it. I think we would be enabling and empowering those people to live fuller, richer lives. You don't sound like a libertarian to me. You sound like a liberal. Yeah. In, in English. In an English yeah, sense. Yeah. But maybe that's my, uh, this, yeah, maybe that's, that's uh, you know, I don't, I don't from. take that as an insult or anything. No. <laughs> no, well, it's interesting because the libertarian movement, you know, over, uh, which really, you know, doesn't start in its current form until at least after World War II and maybe even like in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. Um, you know, that has been drifting more and more towards anarchism, which I think is is different. So, like, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not a foundationalist where I, you know, everything, we've got to go back to, you know, year zero and rebuild the world anew according to the right principles. Mm-hmm. I'm an incrementalist, or sometimes I call myself a directional libertarian, mm-hmm. where it's like, if we are moving in the direction of more individual freedom and autonomy, you know, Let's do that, and let's get there a little bit faster. There's uh, some of the things you, you've described, for example, uh, re- reducing expenditure on on uh, American military, you know, the military industrial complex. Sort of makes. Would, I would imagine that a, a character like RFK yeah. would be he's your guy. The same he's, thing. He's saying that um, most vocally of all the candidates of the of the major candidates of uh, Vivek Ramaswamy might be saying something similar. It gets confusing. Uh, you know, the thing is, when I talk to RFK uh, Jr., you know, it's also, you know, on other levels, like I asked him, you know, it's it's not clear that he would cut overall government spending. So he believes, you know, that the military industrial complex is real. He believes the deep state, you know, particularly the CIA killed both his father, improbably, to be honest, and his uncle, JFK, more probable, but I also think wrong. Um, so... You know, he he is not libertarian in the sense that he doesn't he doesn't envision a world in which the government is doing fewer things and less things. But on certain issues, we kind of line up in terms of the immediate, you know, policy prescription. Is there? Do you think? And maybe tying back to earlier in the conversation about social media, do you think that there's a time for some of the antitrust that we saw, let's say, with the Sherman Act in eighteen ninety? Big pharma. Uh, we've talked about big tech. Is is it time uh, for to break up these big monopolies? Is that is that part of the problem? Yeah, I don't think so. And this might be the dogmatic libertarian in me. Um, I'm very taken by the analysis of a lot of antitrust law that um, both some socialist historians as well as libertarian kind of public choice economists are called where. Uh, they reverse the script and say, uh, you know, the the big story that gets told by progressives in America is that, you know, in the uh, coming into the 20th century, the robber barons, you know, controlled everything. And then a band of plucky, you know, invigorated liberal or not liberal, but progressive reformers came in and said, you know what, we're not going to let the railroad run roughshod over individual people, et cetera. Um, and there was a, a socialist historian called Gabriel Kolko who showed that actually, you know, when it came to the railroad regulation, the railroads were the ones calling for it and abetting it all along because their profits had started flattening or declining. And they went to the government, you know, at, at, at the state and federal level, and they were like, yeah, you know what, it's time to regulate us. Um, and they did that in a way where it, it fixed the market for, you know, uh, until the Carter administration, essentially. 
where it created a bunch of federal um, commissions and but that's agencies. something different. No, that's crony capitalism. No, no, but this this is when you talk about social media in 2018. Congress, you know, finally got around to saying, oh, you know, what social media is bad. Facebook, Twitter, Amazon. You know, all of you people come here and talk to us because you have monopoly power. And what happened? Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Tim Cook of Apple and other people were like, "Hey, you know, you're right. The tech sector should be regulated." And you know what? We're the ones who know the business. Mark Zuckerberg actually literally said this to Congress. I will help you write the regulations so that Facebook is fair. It means, you know, like there's not going to be any more Facebooks because once you regulate a market, you fix it. Mm -hmm. But like, are you okay with that? And the adults in Congress, and I mean, this is important to recognize, they were, you know, 800-year-old mummies holding up cell phones saying, can you help me use this app better? Um, so I don't think antitrust in almost no real case when you look at it, is it helping the consumer? It is always somehow serving special interests, most typically corporate interests, to fix the market in the name of helping the public. So, and I think that's true of the, of the push to, you know, break up social media companies. What, what have we seen in the past year and a half? Facebook changed its name to Meta. Mm. It went into the metaverse. It's, it, it's losing money or, you know, it's losing power and market share. It doesn't matter in the way that it did even two years ago. And it's going to continue to decline because threads, good bid, probably not going to unseat anything. Twitter, there are massive alternatives to Twitter. And, you know, it, there, there are robust markets in these things. So this isn't really an argument uh, ag against monopoly as much as against what actually happens when regulation yeah. comes in. And I, I, I would thought that libertarians wouldn't have a problem with monopoly and it would be a more classical liberal position to be against monopoly like a, a free well, market. Or it, do you think that it actually is a free market? It depends uh, when you look at the actual market. So, you know, this is also uh, uh, one of the major, you know, cases of this was Standard Oil, um, you know, run by John D. Rockefeller and at its moment of peak market penetration when it had more the greatest market share it was charging the less the least amount for home heating oil its main product mm -hmm. and, and lighting fuel and stuff like that because markets that are uh, monopolies that are in markets the way they maintain their their position is generally by giving people more stuff at lower prices um, and I think you know this was true of AOL uh, in the or late 90s and early 2000s when people were saying it's a monopoly because it dominated the ISP market and it was giving people more free stuff than ever. And then it imploded. This is something Jonathan Tepper argues against in a book called The Myth of Capitalism is that actually there is evidence that those big monopolies are fixing prices and monopolies yeah. fixing fixing prices, which is hurting the consumer just as much. So it isn't clear to me that... Uh, that it's it's so obvious that monopoly is a good thing. Yeah, and I'm not saying monopoly is a good thing. Functioning markets are a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, so those are slightly different. But even something like Amazon, you know, Jet came along and is, you know, there are certain industries or Etsy. I mean, like if you define, you know, it, whenever you get into antitrust action, you have to define the relevant market. And then it's like, what is the market that Amazon is monopolizing? Mm -hmm. And then do people have more or, you know, do they have more or fewer options to get the things that they're getting through Amazon? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we're doing, we're doing pretty well as a consumer society. And I know a lot of people who sell things on Amazon and they hate working with Amazon. Amazon is like Walmart, you know, a generation earlier where it's like it's very punishing to be a producer you know, a vendor for these companies because they really squeeze you for every penny in order to offer generally lower prices to a wider variety of people. But again, my general analysis of monopoly and things like that is like, is the consumer better or worse off? We can argue in certain ways, you know, would there be, would it be better if Facebook was forced to carry all speech equally and couldn't prioritize things or not. Um, I don't know, you know, and, but we're never going to live in that world because the minute you say that, then, well, what about hate speech? And then who gets to define hate speech, et cetera? And like, 
then we get mired in all of this, you know, this this web of regulation and committee and bureaucracy over what is available, what is allowable and all of that. Mm -hmm. I think it's generally better um, to let markets kind of sort that out. Um, uh, Nick, on that note, I'm going to say thank you very much for speaking with me. Uh, fascinating. And uh, maybe uh, you can tell listeners and watchers where they can find you. Yeah. Uh, Reason.com is the website for Reason. Everything shows up there eventually. And we have a video platform. We have a, a bunch of podcasts and articles, plus the magazine goes up there. So Reason.com is great. And I'm probably most visible, sadly, at Twitter or whatever we're calling it now. Um, and uh, um, my handle is at Nick Gillespie, all lowercase, all one word. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure and an honor. Thank you.